have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Taryn Siegel, the podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the last seven days and how we got here. On today's episode... This is totally unprecedented. We never, ever reacted so quickly to a crisis as this one. Every European crisis, you see this pattern. The scale of this mess is such that a very high level of action is needed to deal with the public health crisis of our lifetimes. All right, so I have with me today uh, Dr. Scott Greer, who's a professor of political science at University of Michigan. Uh, Scott, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much. Delighted to be here. Uh, so I know that you're also, in addition to being a professor of political science, uh, your bio says you're also the senior expert advisor on health governance for the European Observatory on Health Systems and Policies. Um, would you mind explaining a bit about what that means? Well, what it means is that they're a think tank that operates out of Brussels, and I do scholarship and policy engagement on health policies, health systems organizations, and public health policies. I've been working on European Union public health specifically since 2004, which when it was a very niche topic indeed. Yeah. So what, I mean, I'm just wondering, how did you get interested in European Union politics? So in 2004, I was teaching at University College London, and my research topic was a wonderful one, which was how health and public health policies were made and varied between the different parts of the United Kingdom. Mm. And I was having an absolute blast going around to various rural hospitals, asking people about how they were managed and stuff from one end of Great Britain and Northern Ireland to the other. And one of the tricks when you do this kind of work is that you listen for the things your interviewees say that are smart and just not expected. And what I started to notice is that some of the most strategic and farsighted people I was interviewing for different reasons started to mention the European Union. Hmm. So what were they saying about the European Union? At the time, there were a series of court cases on the issue of whether you could take your rights as an insured person in one EU member state and with no pre-authorization and no emergency, go to another member state and get treatment. So literally the cases began with a couple of guys in Luxembourg who went to Belgium and Germany respectively for a pair of glasses and some dental work. Hmm. And the Luxembourg health system said they didn't want to reimburse that because they reimbursed in Luxembourg, not Belgium. And these guys took it to court and they won that Luxembourg was infringing their rights as European citizens. So wait, let me get this straight. So these were two men from Luxembourg who traveled mm -hmm. to a different member state to get medical treatment and then were asking their home member state to reimburse them for those expenses. Yes. And to cut a long story short, this particular form of patient mobility, as we call it in Europe, where you go to another member state for your health care, is, is an absolutely trivial issue from the perspective of health systems. It's a rounding error, right? Health systems move enormous amounts of money around. Mm. And the amounts of money associated with people seeking unauthorized care and then getting reimbursement at home is tiny. Mm. Because most people, when they're sick, they want to go home. 
you see it now. One of the reasons the epidemic is flaring up again in Hong Kong is people from Hong Kong who want to go home mm. and acquired it somewhere else where they were living. So it's a tiny policy issue, but it's a very big legal issue. Hmm. So it doesn't have a lot of impact financially because, as you said, it's just like a rounding error how much it actually costs these member states. But why is it so important politically or legally? <clears throat> because it meant that the wall that the member states had erected around their health systems and their health policies had been breached. What these cases meant is that the European Union legal system would start to treat health systems as services, just like shoemakers or car dealers or anything else. This was a quite daring raid, in a sense, on member state powers by the European courts to classify health as a service like any other. And the subsequent decade was largely a battle by member states and health lobbies to try and rein in and restrain what the European Union could do. And they were quite successful. So I'm wondering, though, what exactly they're worried about the European Union doing? So it seems like Basically, it starts with patients trying to seek health care in member states outside their home member state and getting their member state to reimburse them for that. And that tiny amount of financial burden has huge legal consequences, because if you say that you can go anywhere in the EU for your medical treatment and your home member state needs to respect that and pay for it, then that means that basically the health service in general is not something that's structured and defined by individual member states, but something that is now up for grabs by the European Union to decide what the regulations and things will be? That's better than I could have put it. <laughs> so that's then what some member states are concerned about. Like, What's like a worst case scenario for some of these member states? What are they worried about? On one level, they're worried about European regulations. So for example, they were. I'll, there's an illustrative real case about a Bulgarian guy, and what Mr. Elchinov had an eye eye problem, a tumor, and the Bulgarians had a perfectly good, to their minds, procedure available, which involved removing his eye. No. He'd wear an eye patch. He informed himself that the Germans had a much more expensive procedure, which would let him keep his eye. He filed a case under European law that it was discriminatory of the Bulgarian system not to let him go to Germany and get mm. the superior treatment. And this brings in the two issues, right? On one hand, the Bulgarians are terrified that they might end up paying for the best available medical mm. treatment. And the Bulgarian GDP doesn't pay for that. It's one third of the GDP per capita of Luxembourg. So the poorer member states are not super interested in having European standards that might be higher than they think they can afford. Mm. No member state is interested in European law setting standards for adequate health care or reasonable wait times or good science. Just they want to maintain control of that. And it's visceral. If I'm a Dutch doctor, why do I necessarily want to have my professional judgment subjected to a European consensus demanded by a court? And then, of course, there's always the ghost at the feast of the European Union, which is redistribution within member states. Because if you're going to, under EU law, make Bulgaria pay for expensive procedures, Somebody might start to suggest the Germans might want to give the Bulgarian government some money to do that. Seems reasonable, to be honest. It is, but you can imagine what the German taxpayers would think of it, right? So yeah. where is the money supposed to come from to have this European standard when the disparity between countries within Europe is enormous? Yeah. So maybe we should get back to the current state of things, mm -hmm. though. Do you want to kind of walk our listeners through 
what has happened just in the last week in the European Union. Um, I know some important legislation was passed. Today, we agreed three safety nets and a plan for the recovery to ensure we grow together and not apart once the virus is behind us. The package we approved today is of a size close to 4% of European GDP. This is totally unprecedented. We never ever reacted so quickly to a crisis as this one. So the this, this stimulus package that, I mean, on its surface seems like maybe a turning point in their response to the pandemic. Do you want to explain a little bit about what was in the stimulus package and what your thoughts on it are? I want to downplay the stimulus package. The UK's stimulus package alone was substantially bigger. Mm. And this is an underlying thing. The European Union basically has no money. Its entire budget is capped at 1% of the GDP of the European Union. The cost of running a health service in Europe runs from a low of 5% of GDP in Romania to 12% in France. So the whole EU budget, every penny of it, is less than a fifth of what it costs per capita to run the Romanian health system. (laughs) And then much of that budget is spent on agricultural subsidies and infrastructure investments that might be valuable but don't run health. So almost any case, if you're talking about direct expenditure by the European Union, rescue packages and things, you're not talking about enough money. The European Union's basic model is the EU regulates in certain areas, such as health systems, and it coordinates in certain areas, such as public health. But the money is member state. So if on the one hand, the European Union doesn't have any money to you know, stimulate economies that are on the verge of a recession like we're facing right now, and then uh, on the other hand, a kind of consensus policy about getting out of a crisis like this actually doesn't apply great to all states at once because each member state is actually interacting with this crisis very differently and and experiencing it very differently. So if coming up with like a a consensus policy, which is one thing the European Union could do, is not really effective in this case, and it also doesn't have any money to address the crisis, (laughs) is there any value in having a European Union in times of crisis? Well, let's play it the other way. They designed a European Union with no money and a regulatory role, which they then did not wish to be applied to health. So EU regulation is much stronger, say, in the case of animals. Mm. If COVID-19 were zoonotic, that's an animal disease, and it will, were slaughtering pigs or sickening cats across the EU, you would discover very forceful European action where they can do things like close borders and order the, the deaths of a lot of animals. Mm. As soon as a disease passes over into humans, the European Union turns from being this very tough, powerful actor into being a pussycat. (laughs) So in a sense, you should be careful what you wish for because you might get it. They wished for a European Union that would be highly deferential and tightly controlled by member states in areas of health, and they got it. That's why probably the overarching sense of European Union activity in February and March was that it just wasn't there. You had to kind of go looking for evidence that the European Union existed in that weird chaotic period of border controls and rolling lockdowns. That whole weird period, the European Union looked like it was missing in action Mm. because what the problem faced in Brussels was we have a whole set of instruments that aren't designed to produce health. How can we use them to do something constructive? Mm. That was the problem in Brussels. And as you might imagine, it took them a while to come up with anything. 
and some of them are still not very satisfactory. There just isn't enough money in the EU budget to pay for any of the real consequences of coronavirus. The EU is this amazing experiment in creating a coordinating and regulating mechanism with no money. Mm. And it's done extraordinarily well, so I hesitate to say it needs to change. But on the other hand, the tension that they keep coming up against is that it's very hard to run a politically legitimate, integrated Europe with no money. So then in that case, I mean, recently people that are criticizing the EU's response have been saying, you know, can the EU really face another catastrophe when it had, you know, the 2008 financial crisis, following that with the migration crisis, following that with Brexit, and now the pandemic? I mean, is this the final straw for the the integrity and value of the EU? But from what you're saying, it sounds like maybe that's not a fair way to judge the European Union, because from its inception, it wasn't really built to address a crisis like this, a health crisis, that is. It wasn't, and it was deliberately not built that way. The, you know, the, the shelves of Brussels are more likely, the recycling bins of Brussels are full of plans for improved European health coordination. Mm. So why, why was it not built that way in the first place? I mean, I think we're kind of seeing what the value of it could be if it had the power to execute some of these things right now, and yet it does, it's not invested with the power to really address a crisis like this. <laughs> like most with most things in this crisis, you'll find that people in the areas of public health that think about this have been saying sort of with the high degree of accuracy being included, what would happen when you got a really good pandemic? And it's not that we're even that original, right? There's the game pandemic. There's Hollywood movies about it. We saw a lot of this coming, but politicians are very good at saying, you're asking me to spend money now and create European Union powers now for a hypothetical that you're trying to scare me with that sounds a lot like a movie. Mm. I'm going to do something else with my time. Whereas we've had a good series of animal health scandals. Horsegate was a lovely one when it turned out that there was horse being sold as beef in supermarkets in Britain and Ireland. And it took 10 countries. This product, this horse meat, had been across, I think, 10 countries in the EU. And they had to trace it back and find out where exactly, and it turned out it was in the Netherlands where a businessman was located who had a warehouse in Brussels where he essentially switched the labels on the food. Wow. Scandals like that mean that there's constant pressure to improve the regulation of animal health, improve the inspection, tie the member state resources more and more closely together. In human health, what have we had? Avian flu was a bit of a nothing from the point of view of most of the public. There were some advantages, some coordinating steps. European Union member states, however, did find that they couldn't buy necessary antivirals and vaccines effectively because big countries went in and bought them all. So they created a joint procurement mechanism. This is a case of the EU doing what the member states can't do. Mm. European Union member states are mostly not that big. How is Malta supposed to get any time with a pharmaceutical company or a pharmaceutical distributor when they're competing with Germany? Whereas if you do EU joint procurement, they realized you can leverage the fact that you have 446 million people in your market. So sorry, EU joint procurement then is like a a pool of resources allotted to the EU as a whole, as opposed to a particular country? The way they've been doing it is that you get a list of countries and they go to the industry and they say, we would like to buy, we would like to negotiate collectively a price with you. And if you have 446 million consumers, you're going to get a pretty good price Mm. and you're going to get pretty good delivery terms. It's a powerful European weapon 
And it's a demonstration of this fact that the EU does things the member states can't do. There's no scenario under which Malta or Estonia can shove around the global pharmaceutical industry, but the EU collectively certainly can. Interesting. Okay, so it sounds like one thing maybe they're at least doing right now, maybe they're a bit slow in in doing this, but getting things like ventilators and other medical equipment that you need to combat this disease, sounds like the EU is able to use its collective bargaining power to get more resources, like maybe more ventilators at at a better price that they can then kind of distribute to their needy member states? Bingo. Because there's a there's a number of fly by night scam artists right now in the medical devices industry. (laughs) But equally, there's a lot of people who have been in this industry for a long time and they're big companies and they don't want to burn their relationships. And you certainly don't want to burn your relationships with 27 governments at once. (laughs) So do you think that maybe a consequence of all this is that, you know, the European Union in its inception was not built, invested with powers when it comes to public health, but now it will kind of assume those powers and assume that role a bit more? Yeah. If the member states want to coordinate their way out of it, and I think they're rapidly learning that they can't do it on their own, you can't isolate European countries any more than they can isolate their citizens. You can't Mm -hmm. do this forever. There's a lot of EU member states where basically nothing is made beginning to end. Belgium. Basically, the only Belgian product that is Belgian all the way from the beginning to the consumption is beer. (laughs) But an enormous proportion of the products you consume in Europe have been through Belgium. Very hard to find a car in Europe that doesn't have Belgian parts, Mm. but they're pieces you don't think about. They're half a dashboard assembly. So if you impede freight traffic in and out of Belgium at all, you have a problem. If you impede skilled workers who are working across multiple factories, which is quite common, especially in Northwest Europe, you gum up the economy. And that means you need some trustworthy mechanism that you can actually understand who is likely to have the virus, what is in danger, what isn't a danger. Then it's not that hard to sort of see the broad legal path in order to get stepped up joint procurement, improved surveillance and data sharing, and improved sharing resources under the civil protection mechanism, which are the three things that you can do within existing EU law that would be immediately valuable in limiting the damage of coronavirus and that would also build something that would be useful in the future. Yeah, so it does kind of sound like, you know, with these states, they're, as you sort of said, they're too far gone at this point. Their economies are too finely woven into one another for them to actually just stop and think of their own national interests. So, I mean, maybe this is a hard question to answer, but... Is there really like an intrinsic benefit to being part of this big European Union? Or is it just that they're too far gone at this point to move backwards and they need to make the best of the situation they're already in? On one level, the answer is necessarily that. It's the second one. It's a bit like asking if there's a benefit to the Czech Republic of being landlocked. Hmm. Well, (laughs) being landlocked isn't good, but what do you plan to do about it? (laughs) But secondly, there is a benefit over and over again. One hand points to the British, who are only beginning their education in how small and vulnerable they're going to be. They're only starting to learn. On the other hand, member states have proven very good at keeping the European Union from running out of control. And health is a nice example of it. Mm -hmm. We began with this conversation about these court cases in 1998 that threatened member state control over health systems. And it took a while, but member state control over health systems is doing just fine. So it gives the lie to the kind of Eurosceptic claim that European power is unstoppably growing. What happens instead is European integration is unstoppably growing. Hmm. 
So um, one thing that keeps occurring to me as we talk about the limitation of powers of the European Union is it seems like there's kind of this catch-22 where on the one hand, you have certain disillusioned member states, disaffected member states, like especially in Italy and Spain, you're getting a lot of Euroscepticism. And especially in a time of crisis like this, maybe seizing upon the lack of action of the EU to say, well, look, the EU is not really giving us very much. Like, what, what do we even, what are, why are we even part of, of this organization? But the reason it's not giving enough is because those same member states are not, you know, investing it with the power that would make it a really rigorous organization and address all of their needs. So it seems like it's kind of in this impossible situation. Like I was thinking of um, something the prime minister of Spain said a couple of days ago, where he said, without solidarity, there can be no cohesion. Without cohesion, there will be disaffection and the credibility of the European project will be severely damaged. And I'm wondering when I hear that, like, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to other member states. One of the things to watch and I'll use Italy as an example, but Spain's not that far behind. Southern European countries used to be really pro-European. Citizens essentially made the calculation that they would rather have European politicians who they imagine as you know, Dutch or German, you know, good, rigid, austere, than Italian politicians. So your faith in your own politicians was connected to your faith in European politicians. Huh. 20 years of stagnation, a complete failure of solidarity during the debt crisis, something that came very close to being a coup mounted by the European Central Bank against an elected Italian president, Berlusconi, and now masks from China before Germany. What do you think's happened to Italian opinion of the European Union? Mm. It's finally getting negative because they're finally drawing the conclusion that the EU governs as badly as their own Italian politicians. Huh. That's an interesting point. It's like, the, member, the individual member states' respect and deference towards the EU is exactly proportionate to their own humility, basically. So the more humble they are about their own abilities and their own local politicians' abilities to get things done, the more skeptical they are of that, the more respect they endow in the European Union. But if they're feeling good about themselves, they don't think the European Union is really worthwhile. That's, that has been the pattern. The European Union historically fails forward. We have a crisis of COVID-19. Now there's two options. One is to go to the member state level and say, I'm Austria, I have confidence in myself, and I shall do what is best for Austria based on the data I have. The alternative is to say, let's act on a European level. Instinctively, and with some rationality, the member states went for the member state solution. I'm Austria, I'm accountable to Austrian people, I'm going to do what I think is best for Austria. That doesn't last in the EU context because they're already too tightly integrated. Mm. You'd have to have Austrik or whatever the Austrian Brexit would be <laughs> to actually pull that off. And the British are demonstrating just how hard Brexit is. Yeah. So your national level solutions don't work because, for example, if Austria gums up the trains crossing the Alps, you gum up the whole of European manufacturing. Mm. So instead, they've got to start to coordinate. So given over and over again, this choice between a better European coordination capacity or repatriating the powers back home, they almost always vote for the better European capacity because they don't like what they learn from having individual countries trying to save themselves. So every European crisis, no matter what the crisis is, you see this pattern. Individual countries look unto themselves, try to solve the problem themselves, don't see why they need to coordinate or share, and after a while, they learn that they're already too tightly integrated for that to work, and they grudgingly move 
to the minimum level of European action necessary to get them out of the mess they're in. Mm. And I think you'll see that, but the scale of this mess is such that you might see a grudging move to a very high level of European action because a very high level of action is needed to deal with the public health crisis of our lifetimes. It would be entirely in keeping with the history of European integration if the member states were suddenly to realize that they cannot get out of COVID-19, not in the next 18 months, not after there's a vaccine, without coordinating with each other. Over and over again, that's what saves Europe. All right, and that's our show. Tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Terrence Eagle. Stay safe, guys. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.